Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Luke chapter 24. I've entitled the morning's message, The Resurrection and the Rapture. Let's go back to our text, uh, Luke 24, verses 1 through 8. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found that the stone rolled away from the tomb, and then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now, uh, if you were here on last Wednesday, we went verse by verse uh, through Luke chapter 24. Uh, but we also compared all of the four Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20. So we could have a complete picture of the order of events uh, some might think that there are contradictions because of the way the different Gospels highlight certain events. Um, but I would say, as Dave Hunt would say, no contradictions. It's a beautiful symphony. And now you have a complete picture. And that was our goal last Wednesday to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put all of those together. We ended Wednesday's study uh, with the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to ask you to turn there this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection. And as we covered the first 11 verses, um, we ended with verse 11. I want to pick it up in verse 12 and read 12 through 19, and then come back and comment on it. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, well, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our teaching in vain And your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also all those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are are all men the most pitiable. So we have here, um, the church of Corinth was a very, very young church, but these were actually church people uh, that would attend, but as it clearly says here, there were some in the church at Corinth that did not, they denied the resurrection. Well, the resurrection, my friends, is the very heart of the gospel. If you go back to just the first four verses, we have the gospel presented to us in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according 
to the scriptures. So in these verses 14 through 18, Paul says, guys, if you deny the gospel, you've denied everything. And every person here, including myself, are, you're wasting your time this morning. And um, on the other hand, um, P- Paul says, the gospel is the very, very heart and soul. I like this last part here. If in this life only we have hope, uh, we're men most pitiful. That's the one thing that the resurrection gives us. First Corinthians 13, when all is said and done, Everything's stripped away, what do you have? You have faith, you have hope, and you have love. And what is our hope? We call it the glorious hope, that the Lord is gonna come and take his church out. And it's gonna, either way you're gonna end up in heaven. Um, You might die, and we're gonna get there and talk about that in just a little bit, you go to heaven. Or this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, we have also um, a picture of the rapture. Now, we have here um, this denial of the faith. What's happening as I speak this morning, and it's picking up steam, is we have more and more well-known people openly coming out and denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could give you a list of names a mile long this morning. I'm just going to zero in on two because a lot of people have been gravitating towards the Hillsong-type ministry. Um, They're out of uh, um, Australia. And um, I'm I'm quoting from an article I pulled off the Internet. And it's from the worship leader of Hillsong, I'm genuinely losing my faith. Hillsong worship leader rejects Christian belief. Hillsong leader denies renouncing faith but says he's on incredibly shaky ground. Yeah, when you step off a solid rock, that's exactly what's gonna happen. His name is Marty Simpson, or Samson, a worship music writer, singer, active member of Hillsong, has publicly denounced his faith on social media. His announcement comes just weeks after well-known Christian author Joshua Harris announced his departure from Christianity, both sharing their news over Instagram. Now, the article is quite lengthy, and it's a, it's a typical example of what happens when you get away from this book and you begin to lean on your own understanding, which we're told not to do. So when that happens, you start rationalizing things, and like last week, we're talking about suffering. Well, how could a loving God? And unless you're studying the scriptures from the beginning to the end, well, then it makes perfect sense. Uh, Why there's a heaven? Why there's a hell? The fact of the matter is everybody's already condemned. And Jesus came, and those that accept him, well, he'll give you his righteousness and he'll take your sin. But the Bible clearly says that all the world is already condemned. And as I was reading him, it was such, you know, the Bible says our heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. This was a a man using his own intellect, allowing his emotion and his heart to dictate what he believes. When my Bible says we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, not by our emotions, but by this book. And... um, I only expect, like I said, I could get very lengthy with um, very famous other people. Uh, one of the things that we're going to read in Second Thessalonians this morning is the apostasia, or the departure as one of the signs of the soon coming of the Lord. Now picking it up in verse 20, we have the order of the resurrection. So I'm going to read verses 20... Um, I might just stop at 21st starters. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I've got to qualify that when it says all. 
Universalists love this verse. And uh, it's all who put their faith in him. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will perish. But each one in his order. Now I'm going to stop for a second and take you through the order of, of the resurrection. It says, Christ, the firstfruits. Jesus Christ was the first one to die, being fully man and fully God, and rise again the third day after he had been dead and with a resurrected body. Remember, Lazarus was dead for four days, but he came back with a physical body and he had to die again. And so at this, just turn back to Matthew chapter 27. And the order, as I see it in the scriptures, of people being resurrected in Matthew chapter uh, 27 picking it up in verse uh, 51. This is, verse 51 says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom on the earthquake and the rocks were split. Okay, that, that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Verse 52 needs some clarification And it says, and graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their graves, and this is very important, after his resurrection. In other words, they didn't come out of their graves until Jesus had already risen from the the dead. And then they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when it says um, here, verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ was first. Well, who was second? Well, evidently, um, like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what was he doing? Well, Luke 16 tells us. There was a rich man who was in hell and torment, and then there was Abraham's bosom, and Lazarus was there being being comforted. That chamber is empty. So when Jesus accomplished, Old Testament saints couldn't go to heaven because Hebrews tells us that the, the, the blood of goats and bulls can never take away your sin. It was a type It was a picture of what's going to happen when the real Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, sheds his blood. Then and only then can a person actually go to heaven. So the second group of people, Jesus was first. The people who were in paradise, Abraham's bosom, some of them, evidently the Lord allowed to um, appear and walk around Jerusalem for a while, but they're in heaven now. They didn't stay there. And then we have verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ first, afterwards those at Christ at his coming. My cross reference here says 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. It's a reference to the rapture of the church. So it's talking about a coming. And many times we've put up on the screen, I'm not doing it this morning, but the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And if you'd like one of those, you don't have one, we'll be happy to get you one. But we've handed, up, handed them out so many different times that um, we didn't put it up this morning. A Christian that dies before the rapture, let's deal with that question. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll talk about that. I had a brother in the Lord come up to me this morning. Says, pray for his father, 92 years old. And um, I said, call the church, we'll pray for him. And he says, uh, well, he wants to go to heaven. <laughs> and he didn't want prayer for uh, uh, hanging around. His wife passed away five months ago. And he just wants to be with his wife. and. Uh, when you're 92, there's not a whole lot you can do. 
Uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, if I, ever, if I ever die and you bring me back, you better be out of arm's distance. <laughs> I mean, one glimpse of heaven and you go, why in the world did I take all those vitamins for in the first place? You know? So, 2 Corinthians 5. What's the order of events? For we know, and I like the certainty of this, I won't do a funeral without reading these verses. For we know, if our earthly house's tent is destroyed, we have a building from God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So what happens at the moment of death? Well, it's an immediate translation where you move out of a tent and you move into a building not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. It's an instantaneous, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, that's not the way it was in the Old Testament before the Old Testament saints when they died. They ended up in a place of comfort. Hebrews said these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but they looked towards their heavenly home. They knew about it, and they were just waiting for the Messiah to come, to die, so that he could empty that place, and um, uh, now those Um, Old Testament saints, they're home too. So let's pick it up. We've read verses. We'd rather be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Uh, Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And the rest of the chapter basically is giving an explanation of what our bodies are actually going to be like. Um, If you look at verses 42 to 44, um, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and is raised in corruption. Well, before you can go to heaven, you have to die. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. When a person gets to be that old, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, there's a weakness that that is there, a frailty, we call it, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Uh, verse 49, and we have all borne the image of the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. It goes on to say there's an earthly body and there's a heavenly body. So most of the chapter is about the resurrection. What happens? And how is there some that are saying there is no resurrection when resurrection is everything? Uh, verse 50, now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And then he stops. He says, well, there's one exception to this rule. He says, behold, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's the word for death for a Christian. They never die. Um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now that word is the same word where we get the word metamorphosis or metamorphosized. Uh, We know it better uh, when we see a caterpillar uh, just crawling around on the ground, a little furry thing, 
and all he can do is crawl around on the ground and eat and get fat. And uh, then, eventually, uh, he forms uh, crystallis. My wife says, make sure you leave the T out. (laughs) Chrysalis. And after billions and billions of years. (laughs) No, we're talking two weeks, my friends. Two weeks from a creature from this to form its own home. Basically, his whole body is transformed And they come out two weeks later with this beautiful creature. Just just take a monarch, because the monarchs are out right now. You know where they're going? They're going to some mountain outside of Mexico City, in Mexico. How do they know how to get there? That's where they all end up. If they're from Washington State or New York State, they all end up in the same mountain. And it's something you can Google. It's it's, um, the Lord. And he said, that's how it's gonna be for you. We're earth dwellers now. We dwell on this earth. But we're gonna be changed. We're gonna go through this metamorphosis. And we're gonna take on this new image. And it's gonna be for a certain group of people. When is it gonna happen? Well, it's gonna happen quickly in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Uh, It says here the last trump. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what is the last trump. I'll quote J. Vernon McGee and then I'll quote um, Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost. Not a great name, just for, I, I I think it's a great name myself. Let me quote McGee, first of all, J. Vernon McGee, one of my heroes. He says, at the last trump, what is that? That is his last call. The trump is his voice. John tells us in the book of Revelation, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, and when he turned to see who was speaking, he saw Christ, Revelation 1, 10 through 13. So at the last trump is the voice of the Lord Jesus on his last call to mankind. Um, Someday he's gonna say, he said to Lazarus, come forth, John 11, 43. Someday he's gonna say to me, Vernon, come forth. And he will also call up your name. So we're waiting for a trumpet We always use the word trumpet. In Revelation chapter four, verse one, um, uh, John talks about um, uh, a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here. And we have, I believe, the rapture of the church in Revelation 4, one. They do not appear again in the book of Revelation once you get into chapter six through 19. Not one mention of the church. You find them in chapter five. They're all in heaven. They're singing a new song of salvation and the glory of their redemption. So uh, let me give you um, uh, uh, Pentecost, what he is. His take on the trumpet of the rapture, in at least three biblical passages concerning the rapture, a trumpet is mentioned. 1 Corinthians 15 here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and then the one I just quoted, Revelation 4, verse 1. How are we to understand this? Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost writes, the phrase, the trump of God is significant, for in the Old Testament, the the trumpet was used for two things, to summon to battle and to summon to worship. Which of the two meanings, however, is involved at the rapture? Dr. Pentecost suggests that both meanings are in mind, one directed towards angels and others to believers. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul had written about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 4. And then he had to write 2 Thessalonians because evidently, and let me, let me say something here. A little, little, I'll do a couple of little sidetracks this morning. Um, we should never think or have the attitude that we should not teach prophetic things or Bible prophecy, um, especially if you're a young believer. Why? Because Paul was in Thessalonica for less than a month. And he taught them every major doctrine, including the rapture of the church and the second coming. So something had happened. What he had clearly taught in 1 Thessalonians, now he has to rewrite because as we read verse one here, um, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. So this is clearly a reference to the rapture. Why? We get gathered to him and he comes uh, to meet us in the air. That's not the case with the second coming. So we can't have the second coming in view here. The second coming, we actually come with the Lord. So verse one is clearly a reference to the rapture. And then he says in verse two, listen guys, I don't want you to be shaken up in your mind. I don't want you to be troubled either by spirit or word or by letter as it was from us as though the day of Christ had come. All right, we've just changed from the rapture of the church And somebody had written in there and changed it around that somehow they must have missed the rapture and that um, you're getting ready to enter in now to the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. He said, we didn't write that letter. I don't want you to think that. So what he does is he goes on to explain to them once again the order of events. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Verse three, by any means for that day, what day he's talking about the tribulation period, will not come unless the lead singer from Hillsong falls away from the faith. (laughs) Oh, that's not your translation? Unless the falling away come first. Let me, let me get into um, um, the Greek word here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Um, except there come a falling away first. Um, the word there is apostasia. If you like to use a Strong's, it's a G646 in your Strong. And its definition is forsake, defect, leave a strong position, Falling is key, falling from is important here. It is not a physical falling away, as in falling from earth to judgment. The Bible does not refer to such a thing anywhere else. It means to defect from a previously strong stand. And um, there can be no other meaning for this word. Um, So what we have here, the falling away, we're actually talking about that in the last days what we read other scriptures like they won't endure sound doctrine. Uh, They'll gravitate towards people who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Uh, Last last week I I warned you, you got not going to like this Bible study because it's all about suffering. Well boy was I wrong because I had so many people comment I needed that message. And that one spoke to me, and so on and so forth. And that's the thing about Scripture. If you just tell the truth, the the Holy Spirit is able just to reaffirm it. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And if you hold to the the teaching, I ran into a couple people this week that hold to um, the prosperity doctrine and the name it and claim it, and that you're always supposed to be uh, healthy, wealthy, and so on. And we, we, you're going to run into them, and uh, they'll they'll you know turn their nose up at you, and they'll be upset with you that you would speak anything other than that. Well, that's a negative confession, don't you know? There's power in your words, and whatever you say, you're going to get. Here's how you dismantle them with one verse. Okay, if you believe that's what the Bible says, David said. 
today surely Saul is going to kill me. That's a negative confession, gang. Did David die that day? No, he did not. And it doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. To, 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 say, to look at the real world and say that part of the Christian life is suffering. And then to put a guilt trip on, t- on top of that, it's your fault that you are suffering, just like Job. What did Job do wrong? Absolutely nothing. What did all of his friends accuse him of? Job, come on, man, fess up. Obviously, you did something wrong, and if you just confess your sin, everything's gonna be fine. There's a scripture that Jesus says, a a bruised reed he will not quench. What does that mean? It means you don't kick a guy when he's down. You comfort him when he's down. You don't lay a guilt trip on somebody who's already suffering and say, well, you obviously need to repent. Get your act together. Where's your faith? That kind of stuff. No, a bruised reed Jesus will not quench. And uh, we're we're to follow that. So... um, we left off in Second Thessalonians. So where were, was I? I did get sidetracked on that one. Uh, two, we're at verse three. Thank you. So the idea here is there has to be this falling away that comes first, and then what? Well, verses four through six. And this is the order that we have in the book of Revelation. When Jesus opens the first seal, the rider on the white horse is none other than the Antichrist. And he says, and then after the falling away, um, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. They're talking a lot about building the third temple in Jerusalem right now. And I say that because I believe we're getting close. He says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? You see, he's going back to 1 Thessalonians now. Okay, it hasn't been that long. I haven't been here a month. And already you're confused. And there's a lot of people confused about the rapture of the church, the timing of it. He says, well, don't you remember I went through all this in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 4 and 5? Then he says, And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Now verse seven, we find, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he, it's in the masculine, is taken out of the way. So here we're talking about a restraining force that's still in the world, masculine, he, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it's restraining sin. There's still people who are standing up and say that abortion is wrong. That say homosexuality is wrong. And saying that um, uh, adultery is wrong. And um, instead of everything being relative, well, that might be right for you, but it's okay with me. No, there's people that have absolute standards to live by. Good place for an amen. amen. Who would that be? Those who will not compromise with this book. End of, it, end of the matter. We're gonna have Hawking with us next week. You better get ready for your amens. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> and um, what does he say? It's the Bible. The whole Bible. And nothing but the Bible. And then he's going to ask for an amen, so get warmed up. <laughs> so we find verse 7 is a picture of the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in you? Well, what happens when the rapture takes place? The restraining force is removed. And now the Antichrist is going to come up with his explanation for what happened to all these people. Okay, let's continue. Verse 8. And when the lawless one, all right, now we're back at the Antichrist, will be revealed, 
whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. That's Revelation 19, end of the tribulation. With the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all uprightness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The lie is gonna be one lie that's gonna deceive the whole world. And I personally, will. Um, um, let me read something from Hal Lindsey about the rapture. It's only a paragraph long. What will be the reaction of a sin-sick society when millions of people suddenly disappear. In his well-known book, The Late Great Planet Earth, Hell, Lindsay writes, there I was driving down the freeway and all of a sudden the place went crazy. Cars going in all directions and not one of them had a driver. I mean, it was wild. I think we got an invasion from outer space. And I don't think Hell really quite knew what he was saying when he said that because that's exactly what I believe is gonna be the lie. There's a lot of um, documentation, some of it just being, re- being released, about ETs, that they're here right now. And um, there's too many cases that have been documented that we can't explain it away, that they actually exist. Let me tell you something. There's absolutely no way there's ETs. There is absolutely way that there are demons. That the Bible says that Satan can turn himself into an angel of light. Um, will that be the lie? Yeah. I think he's just gonna pop on the scene and says, well, it, it's time to get rid of those people that were so narrow-minded they wouldn't compromise on anything They weren't in favor of a one-world religion. Uh, They didn't want peace. They said it's Jesus or nothing, and they had to go. This goes way back to the Aquarian Conspiracy, which is a New Age book that explained this a long time ago. What was her name, Ferguson? I can't remember it off the top of my head. But this has been in the works for a long time, explaining the rapture away. And I think it, it will be just that. And they'll come and say, look, we planted you guys here a long time ago. We've been watching you grow, and now it's time we have to intervene because you guys are going to kill yourself unless we do. Something along those lines. I can't be dogmatic on that because I don't 100% know. But that makes sense to me. I mean, I watched Star Wars last night, okay? (laughs) And um, um, Star Trek has been going on for how many years? We've been... Um, precondition, so to speak, about being beamed up, right? Beam me up, Scotty. And it's a part of our culture. Um, All right. Not only will the rapture happen quickly, but it'll happen all around the world. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Beginning with verse 36, says, but of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Let me tell you why this cannot refer to the first coming or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Daniel 9 tells us to the day, April 6, 32 AD, when Jesus would come. Revelation chapter 12 tells us to the day Jesus is going to come a second time. Well, when is that, Dwight? Well, take the notes, be a Berean. It's Daniel chapter 12, and it says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when that event happens, we have 1,290 days later the Lord coming. And then it says, blessed is he who makes it to the 1,335th day. There's a 45-day period of time. What's that all about? Well, it's a judgment of the nations, Matthew chapter 25. Immediately after the tribulation, the Lord will judge the nations and separate the sheep from the goats to the day. So when I read verse 36, the only day I don't know when the Lord is coming is the rapture of the church. 
But as but there will be signs, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage until the day they entered into the ark. In other words, life as normal. Um, you know, Johnsonville brats today, it's a, a Labor Day weekend, where did the summer go? And getting together this afternoon, um, planning somebody's wedding, and life is normal. Certainly can't be the second coming because the Bible says unless the Lord comes back, Man will destroy himself. That's how bad it's going to be on the earth. Here we have a picture of normality. Then in verse 39, do you not know, uh, and they did not know until the flood actually came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Um, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. And another place that talks about um, being in the field, another place, one of the Gospels puts one will be in bed and um, one will be taken, the other one left. What's your point? That some people will be sleeping when the rapture happens on one side of the world and some people will be working on the other side. So it happens instantaneously but it's a worldwide event. What does the Lord tell us to do? Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, some hold to the belief that the ones that are taken out here are the wicked that are taken to judgment and that the righteous are the ones that are left behind. My answer to that is 2 Peter chapter 2. So let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And this is why it's so important to get the whole Bible underneath your belt and get a good view of it. And this is something that takes years, not a couple uh, pre-digested thoughts studied on, on the rapture. No, we're talking about the whole counsel of God and what kind of picture does that portray when we're talking about the rapture of the church. Well, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We'll be looking at that in a little bit. And he did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Who was taken and who was left? Noah was taken. The unrighteous were left behind. All right, another example, verse six. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned those to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day. Don't you get grieved when you see where our country is headed? Don't you get grieved when you see the laws that are being passed? Um, somebody was telling me that if you have a son who has cancer uh, and he's uh, under underage that, um, and you decide you want, don't want to treat him with either radiation or chemo, that they can take that child away from you? Did you know that? That's the world we're living in. Parents can't be parents anymore in some cases. Um, but he was grieved from day to day, seeing and hearing their deeds. Then it says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. What we have here is uh, in Second Peter 
Two examples. In both cases, it's the righteous that are taken out, as it was in the days of Noah. That's what we read. In. And um, we have Lot and his wife and two daughters being taken out of Sodom. Well, we've said this many times here. For every New Testament teaching, we have Old Testament pictures. Let me show you Old Testament pictures using Enoch, Noah, and Lot. We've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah. And I'm going to go back to verse 24. We're introduced to a man named Enoch. He lived 365 years. Verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What do you mean God took him? Well, he just took him. And my point with all this is that we do not have the flood coming until chapter six and seven. We have a picture of the rapture with Enoch and he's taken out, my point, before the flood. He was taken out before judgment came. This, I could really get sidetracked here but I really, unfortunately, don't have the time to talk about his son Methuselah and how that plays into that. If you look at chapter six, Verse eight, we find something out about Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So now when we hear the word grace, what do we think of? What have you and I obtained? Grace. Noah found grace. This is the genealogy of Noah. He was a just man. The word perfect, we know, doesn't mean what that he never sinned. He did sin. But... Um, He was righteous in his generation. He was a preacher of righteousness. And Noah also walked with God. So as we look at um, that, turn to chapter seven and we'll find something very, very interesting that I had mentioned during the staff meeting about these verses. So chapter seven is them getting ready to go into the ark. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. It makes me think of Revelation 4. Come on up. And um, come into the ark, you and your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, male and female, to each of every animal that are unclean, a male and a female, and seven each of birds of the air, a male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. Verse four is very important. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. I want to do a little sidetrack here. And what hit me when I read about this, and there are Old Testament pictures, Enoch, picture of the rapture. We have the same thing happening here. Whoever was in the boat was going to be saved. They were going to be taken up, and judgment was going to happen below. But this is what got me sidetracked. No one knew when it was going to happen. Verse four says, Noah, in seven days, it's all gonna hit the fan. And uh, we were kicking this around in our staff meeting, and um, I mentioned, what would you do if you knew that one week from today, David Hawking wasn't gonna be speaking here? That between that time and the seventh day, if you knew that Jesus was going to come, what would you do that would be different? Would you think any different? Would your plans for this coming week be any different? Is there some unfinished business with people that you've been meaning to talk to? And all of a sudden, um, let me just tell you up front that we don't know. Luke 21 verse 30 says, says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape those things that are coming to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So we don't know. And this is just me thinking a little bit 
really with the purpose to stir you up because I believe it's late. Can I get an amen on that? And I think if, if there's gonna be any regrets, I thought of this this morning as brushing my teeth. Schindler, from Schindler's List. And, um, you know, he's known for um, saving many Jews from the concentration camps, and Oscar Schindler. And I, I can never get the end of the movie out of my head because even though the Jews now are rescuing him because the Ger- Germans, I mean the Russians would kill him because he was pretending to be in with the Germans. But really he was saving Jews with his own money. But he was crying at the end of the movie because he still had money left. I remember taking, he says, this pin right here is gold. That's five more Jews that I could have saved. And I didn't do it. And he's beaten himself up because there was regrets that he could have done more. What's your point, Dwight? Well, if we really did think we had, you got seven days. What are you going to do with it? Who are you going to talk to? And what things are you going to do different? Because if, there, if there's tears that are going to be wiped away in heaven, I, I wonder about that. Tears being wiped away. What, why would we be wiping away tears? I'll tell you what I think. I would probably think I could have done more. I would probably think I should have done more. And I probably would have thought I had an opportunity there, and I let it go. Could have told him about the Lord, and I didn't. I don't want to lay any guilt trips on people, but just the reality that the Lord told us to watch and redeem the time and pray that you're counted worthy to escape. Here's a, escape what? Well, we'll be getting into that uh, in just a second. So a little rabbit trail there. What would you know if you only had that? We need to be busy, if you'd excuse the pun here, of getting people into the boat. Noah was busy that last seven days. What? getting living things into the boat. The ark is a type of Christ. And um, those who were in Christ will be saved. And they will be taken up. And so uh, Jesus told us, let me use use this again, not a guilt trip. We got some of the finest speakers in the world that are gonna be here this week. You realize that? And I think David Pocking is one of the finest Bible teachers in the world. Why don't you and your wife talk about who you want to bring to church next week? Take a couple days off. Bring somebody to, the, to a prophecy conference and they don't have a clue what the rapture is and if they think that you believe in it, they probably think you're crazy anyway. Didn't they think uh, Noah was crazy? They thought Lot was crazy. He's, he's the guy that I want to look at next. Let's go to, uh, here it is. Genesis 19. While you're turning, I'm going to quote Isaiah 57, verse 1. It says, The righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Second Peter 2 used Noah and Lot as an examples of being taken out before judgment. In chapter 19, verse 15, you all know the story. Lot is living in Sodom. Angels come to him and warn him that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, let's pick it up uh, in verse 15. Um, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while they lingered, the man took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside the city, he said, escape for your life, and do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain, Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. And Lot said, please know, my Lord, uh, indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. 
Now see there, here's the city uh, to flee to. It's just a little one. Please let me go there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And they said to him, see I have favored your concerning this thing also and I have not overthrown this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. Notice what he says next. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. I can't bring judgment until the righteous are taken out. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zorah. And when the morning came, the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from, the, from heaven. And he overthrew those cities of the plain and the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Jesus is going to quote this next verse in the New Testament. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Jesus said concerning these times, remember Lot's wife. What's he telling us? Don't think about going back. Don't follow what the Hillsong crowd is doing. They have, they're on shaky ground. They've gone back, they've denied the faith. And the Lord clearly warns us, remember Lot's wife. She didn't make it. And um, um, with that, I'm gonna have you turn to Isaiah chapter 26 because I believe the rapture is actually taught. And as you're turning again, how many times have I said in the middle of the prophet speaking something, we have a stop Information and prophecy given to us. Again, example, Zechariah chapter nine. Jesus coming in on a donkey. It's a whole change of thought. And then the very next verse is another change of thought from riding in to reigning over the entire world. The same is here, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, where we read, come my people, Enter your chambers. What did Jesus say in John 14? Behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. That's a chamber. And shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment, just a little time, until the indignation is over. What's the indignation? It's one of the five or six names of the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the indignation, Jesus called it the tribulation. Different names for it. Here it's called the indignation. So what are they told to do? Enter their chambers. Oh, it's just gonna be for a little while. How long's the tribulation? Seven years. Compared to all the time that's been, that's a very short time. Until the indignation is passed. Well, why? What's going to happen? The Lord, behold, the Lord comes out of his place. What is he going to do? To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going back to our psalm we read this morning. I'm going to read one verse. The verse is, um, to execute vengeance on the nations and the punishments of the people. In a psalm, that's all about praising the Lord. What does he do? Throws in a verse like that. Same idea. We have here the Lord coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and no uh, no more cover her slain. All right, let's turn, if you would, with me. We've just gone through Enoch, Noah, Lot. All of them are consistent pictures of a pre-trib rapture. First Thessalonians chapter five, if you're taking notes, let me read three verses. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, scare one another to death with these words. Now what does it say? Therefore, comfort one another just as you're doing with these words. I gotta be honest with you, my friends. I find no comfort in being any part of the tribulation period. Some say, well, everything's fine during the first three and a half years. Really, 
Let me just tell you what happens during the trumpet judgments quickly without getting in depth here. First of all, one third of all green things are going to be gone. Then one third of the sea becomes blood. Then one third of all the fresh water is poisoned. Then one third of the sun and the stars are dimmed. And then one third of the world's population is going to be destroyed by these plagues. I find no comfort in that, my friend. And to say otherwise, to be is ludicrous. To have the church to be any part of this and have the audacity to say, uh, uh, God has not appointed us to wrath. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 16 says, this is the wrath of the Lamb. God's judgment upon those that have, have rejected him. And... Um, Let's close this morning by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we started. That's where we'll close. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And I like what Paul says here. Let's get it on. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so all of chapter 15 on the resurrection is going to end with a therefore. Therefore, what are we to do? My beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We need to be about our Father's business. Good place for an amen. Amen. Bringing people into the boat. Please take advantage of this coming week. If you need to rearrange some things and talk to some people, think about what would I do if I knew I only had this much time left. And by the way, you don't know how much time you have left. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we finish the Gospel of Luke. And we pray as we go this holiday weekend uh, that you will um, just bless our fellowship with one another. And Lord, we're so grateful for the resurrection. And because you rose again and you have a new body, so will we. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A verse like that. Same idea. We have here the Lord coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and no, uh, no more cover her slain. All right, let's turn, if you would, with me. We've just gone through Enoch, Noah, Lot. All of them are consistent pictures of a pre-trib rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're taking notes, let me read three verses. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, scare one another to death with these words. Now, what does it say? Therefore, comfort one another just as you're doing with these words. I gotta be honest with you, my friends. I find no comfort in being any part of the tribulation period. Some say, well, everything's fine during the first three and a half years. Really? Let me just tell you what happens during the trumpet judgments quickly without getting in depth here. First of all, one third of all green things are gonna be gone. Then one third of the sea becomes blood. Then one third of all the fresh water is poisoned. Then one-third of the sun and the stars are dimmed. And then one-third of the world's population is going to be destroyed by these plagues. I find no comfort in that, my friend. And to say otherwise, to be it's ludicrous to have the church to be any part of this and have the audacity to say, God has not appointed us to wrath. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 16 says, this is the wrath of the Lamb. 
God's judgment upon those that have, have rejected him. And um, let's close this morning by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we started. That's where we'll close. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And I like what Paul says here. Let's get it on. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so all of chapter 15 on the resurrection is gonna end with a therefore. Therefore, what are we to do? My beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We need to be about our Father's business. Good place for an amen. Amen. Bringing people into the boat. Please take advantage of this coming week. If you need to rearrange some things and talk to some people, think about what would I do if I knew I only had this much time left. And by the way, you don't know how much time you have left. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we finish the Gospel of Luke. And we pray as we go this holiday weekend uh, that you will um, just bless our fellowship with one another. And Lord, we're so grateful for the resurrection. And because you rose again and you have a new body, so will we. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.